Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. So much being bandied about with AI and generative AI and all sorts of things, and it's like, that's great in a vacuum, but in, unless you apply that to the business and to a business case, it doesn't really matter. And I think that's that's the stuff that gets excited about. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Imagine you're going fishing. Let's say for bass. What if, instead of wandering through a big box store trying to figure out the right gear for bass fishing, you logged onto a website that told you exactly what to get to catch bass on the very lake you plan to fish? That's Omnia Fishing. Launched in 2018 by a trio of fishing enthusiasts who were experienced at building startups and creating innovative technology, Omnia is a next-gen shopping experience, not just selling products, offering recommendations based on where you fish, what you're fishing for, and even the time of year. They're disrupting the $5 billion tackle industry and building a new brand of customized, information-driven commerce that could be applied to other industries as well. So far, Omni has raised more than $6 million in several funding rounds, and while they aren't yet profitable, the founders say 2023 will be their first eight-figure year. It's a classic story of how a venture-backed startup grows, and we sat down with the three founders, CEO Matt Johnson, Chief Operating Officer Chris Morgel, and Chief Technology Officer Dan Wick. Here's Matt to get us started. So Chris and I were working together at the time and, and started thinking through this idea. Um, I had uh, previously started a company. I had sold that company. And, you, want, uh, you want to tell what that was? Sure. I had started a company called Contour Innovations uh, with a partner here locally. Uh, built it up. We had about um, 10 or 12 employees here in, in Northeast Minneapolis. And um, as part of the acquisition, one of the stipulations was that they couldn't move the office. And so I, I had to work there for a few years post-acquisition. And, uh, and so they just treated it as kind of their digital center for the, for the business. I'd sold it to a, a private equity-owned group called Navico, where most of their, their consumer operations were in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And no offense to anybody that lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but I didn't want to live there. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and so we did open up the office and actually expanded a little bit post-acquisition. And, so and what did that company do? They were the leader in marine electronics at the time. So the, the biggest segment they sold within a couple different um, groups within marine electronics, but the, the biggest segment was um, a product brand called uh, Lowrance, and that was uh, a, a massive company um, that sold to, to anglers all across the world. So we had three big segments, Navico Americas, and we had a, an EMEA group and an APAC group. And we, we essentially became the, the kind of the center for their digital piece. So my company had, had um, created a technology where we allowed an angler to gather their own sonar from the marine electronics while out fishing or using marine electronics for government purposes, upload that data, and it would automatically create a map for them. 
And depending on the vertical or the product that we were selling, the output would be very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so th- this concept was something that we built for consumers in order to uh, allow them to create their own digital maps very quickly. And we're, we will get to your partners, but, uh, but just this kind of sets <laughs> up the, the, scene, the scene for everything yeah. that, that you do. I mean, yeah. how did you come up with that idea in the first place? How did you ever go down that path? Yeah, so, so the original idea was, uh, was my founding partner who, um, we were actually out fishing at the time. Okay. And we were just watching this depth finder, which if you're familiar with, it just has this screen that just constantly scrolls. And so it, it doesn't give you a great visual representation of the bottom mm-hmm. because whether you're sitting still or moving or the speed at which you're moving, it's constantly sending signals to give you a view of the bottom. That's the, the purpose of the sonar. It, it, and it's advanced a lot since then. This was about 2010. But the idea was this data was falling off the screen and there was a lot of people talking about the power of data at the time but not coming up with a lot of great solutions for like, how do you actually harness data for, for, for value? And so the idea was like, if, if you could spatially represent this information that's constantly, both, both gather it, collect it, and then render it for somebody in a way that would be very useful for decision-making, um, the, the process of creating a map at that time was very difficult. Um, and the maps that were available, I would say, just weren't great, and they weren't improving. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to take this thing that was constantly scrolling off the end of the screen harness it, and then allow somebody to create their own map. And, and using cloud technology, they didn't have to know anything. Um, so all they had to do was go gather it uh, and create a map for themselves. So, so that was the original idea. And then we started creating maps for government agencies, an example for um, monitoring invasive plants. Uh, and so we would go out and figure out what did that market look like? How big was it? Create a product output and, hmm. uh, and make that available to them. And so the, where we really got the attention of the marine electronics company was when we dialed it back for consumer. And so we said, let's let anglers create a map, upload their sonar from their, sonar from their depth finder, see um, what the bottom contours actually look like, which is just one big math equation. So I know it's 10 feet deep here, and I know it's 8 feet deep here. Where's the 9-foot contour interval? Mm-hmm. And then we would show them how hard the bottom is. We'd show them uh, where the plants are located, which is all really important for catching fish because fish all relate to all of those different details. How deep, how, bottom, how, how hard is the bottom, where's the plant life, you know? So we built the company based on that concept of harnessing that information. And, and, and you kinda, knew how to do that stuff? Did, no, that, <laughs> that was the, the classic entrepreneur, like, we'll figure it out along the way. You know, we, we, had, we had all the airplane parts and we'd just jump off the cliff and assemble it as we're heading down. Okay. Um, and so that was 2010. We launched our first product end of 2011. That was a, actually a really interesting story. We had a friend of ours who worked for the DNR at the time said, you guys should think about building a product that looked like these maps that were taking him weeks and weeks to create. And we said, we think we could do that with 15 minutes of cloud processing. And so we need your help to figure this out. He said, you know, I'm too busy. And then uh, if you remember 2011, the the government shut down in Minnesota. Mm. And so we said, you know, during that time period, you're essentially furloughed. Why don't you come work for us? And he didn't work for us during that period. We built and launched that product within that time period. So just a a spot of luck of the the government falling apart. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so that was one of our first products. We got the attention of Lawrence, and uh, we built a consumer product for them, for, for anglers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, they acquired the whole company and the technology. They wanted to build this digital hub for their, for their electronics company, and, uh, and, and that all started in Minneapolis. Okay, and that then left you free to go on and do the next thing? You didn't have any, like, non-compete with them? No, I definitely did. Um, I had to live that. So I sold the company in 2014, and I had signed on for... Uh, a couple of years as part of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, so still ran the, the group here and our, our roadmap changed a little bit, but essentially we just kind of continued on. 
Um, and uh, it was actually it was a great experience. I became head of digital globally and and, uh, and and would travel around the world and teach people how to integrate technology and spend a lot of time fishing and all over the world. And it, it was a pretty great experience. But that's the long story on how I met Chris. So. Okay. <laughs> Chris, Chris was working for Lawrence at the time uh, in their marketing department, transferred in the sales department, and they said you could live wherever you want. And, and uh, Chris has a connection to Minnesota, Iowa, you know, the upper Midwest. And uh, they said, well, we do have a, this new office in Minnesota. Uh, Chris said, I'll, I'll work out of there. So that was the first time we took a non-digital uh, employee of Lawrence and, and uh, made space for him here in Minneapolis. Chris, hello. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, so, Matt's gonna let somebody else talk. Yeah, we both, <laughs> we both started the same year, and uh, uh, no offense to Tulsa people, but uh, again, I was one of the people that moved from northern Minnesota to to Tulsa and spent about two years there, and knew Matt along the way, but ultimately ended up moving to his office here, taking a sales role. So I think we worked together here out of the office for a couple of years, and then kind of concepted Omnia. Okay, so and and Chris, your background is in sales, not in tech. So stuff. I, not tech, no. And I'm this is my first time, you know, founding a business. Um, my background is outdoor sporting goods. So I've I've spent my career the various different tackle manufacturers. One being pier fishing in in Northwest Iowa. Longer story here. Dan and I have a connection to Northwest Iowa as well, but uh, not related to that. Uh, so I started my career at company called Pier Fishing, and then moved to northern Minnesota and was up there for, for six years working for a smaller tackle manufacturer called Northland Fishing Tackle. Okay. We will bring Dan into the party in a minute, but what I'm curious about, given that the two of you had been working together, what did you feel like, what, what did you see as the next opportunity? Was there something you weren't able to do with the previous company that you felt like was the, the nugget that became Omnia, or, or, or what was it? Yeah, I think there's some underlying tones in what Omnia is and, and what I was doing um, for the previous company. But th- th- there was this idea that I-, I understood how to spatially organize information and the power of it. We, it hadn't, in my opinion, been applied to commerce or retail yet. And, and I thought that was a really important piece that was missing for trying to push fishing commerce into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, it was through kind of my relationship development in my role as business development for, for Navico where I started meeting people and hearing that, you know, there was this common theme of these manufacturers were having these challenges dealing with a, a sales channel that was almost completely developed brick and mortar and in store. And so I, I just, you know, with the idea that we could organize information similar to the way we had built maps, uh, and, and that, that's where this concept of shop by late came along, is Chris had the background in how the consumer goods and, and the tackle industry worked. Mm-hmm. I understood how to organize data spatially. Mm-hmm. But neither of us were the, the technical solution to get this over the hump. And, and so I'm trying to create a very natural segue into Dan. Very good. Yeah, Thanks so. for helping me with my job. <laughs> and there he is, yeah. Dan yeah. Wick. Okay. And, and so, so how did you guys know each other? Yeah. So uh, Chris and I had concepted what this might look like and, and, and really like what, what were the barriers to getting into something like this? What would be the challenges of creating a, this shot by late concept if we, if we hang on that? And so, uh, you know, I'd been in the, the startup community for a while. I, I'd met quite a few people. I don't know if Brett Broll was the guy that introduced Probably, this yeah. kind of, yeah. Um, but, but I said, listen, tech I, stars. I, yeah, yeah. So I said, I, I have two of the really important pieces. I think there's a, a technical component that's missing. And uh, uh, I had lunch with Brett one day and, and he said, well, I know a guy who uh, had a prior acquisition uh, and uh, had built companies dealing with lots of SKUs. And that was really going to be a challenge for us. It was 
the, the reason that, the, that Omnia was an opportunity is because shopping online for tackle can be relatively confusing. And, it's beca- and the tackle manufacturers do it to themselves. They create every single product in seven different arbitrary sizes and 47 different colors. And so when you take one product family and put it online, you know, seven times 45 is, is the number of SKUs you're dealing with for just one product. So, so we knew that we needed somebody that understood retail. They, mm-hmm. they understood the technical requirements to build something like this and then had dealt with this really, really incredibly large amount of SKUs, which is fairly unique to, to, to fishing. But it's also unique to paper and uh, some of the things that Dan would had dealt with in his right. prior life. So I met Dan in his prior life with Red Stamp. That's right. And that's what you were doing. But when you had, that had ended, you were... Yeah, so in 2013, we were acquired by Taylor Corporation in Mankato, and Aaron Newkirk, who was one of the co-founders along with Renee Walter, I joined them in 2006 and then grew the business to the point where we were acquired in 2013 by Taylor, and it was, you know, our taking advantage of mobile was where we kind of found our product market fit. And like Matt was saying, we had a ton of products, and when we moved to print-on-demand, it became infinite, and so managing a bunch of SKUs and a bunch of Designs for products is not that dissimilar when you think about like the metadata that's incorporated in a design of a card. The usage of a piece of tackle is similar in the sense that there's lots of applications for that. And for people who aren't familiar, I I should just say, first of all, I still miss red stamp sometimes (laughs) when I'm late to send a a friend or a loved one a card. But it was the idea of sending personalized mobile greetings. Yeah. Yep. So correspondence. Yep. So then I spent three or four years at Taylor Corporation working in their uh, Taylor Digital Department. And like Matt said, Brett sort of connected us. And I think we had uh, a drink at, at Able Brewery. And he was talking about this idea of, of uh, data-driven shopping around lakes and the amount of data around the lakes was super interesting. And I think, you know, I grew up fishing, but I would say as an adult, I wasn't the most active angler. But um, like Chris said, we grew up about 10 miles apart, 10 <laughs> years apart. But uh, so I knew Okaboji and pure fishing and the Berkeley brand that that was uh, we went to the store at the lakes where Chris worked many times when uh, we were fishing. So I knew a lot about fishing, but I didn't actively wasn't an active angler as an adult. So I uh, knew right away that there was an opportunity to at least take the fishing industry, which had been really latent to get into e-commerce. Yeah. And I knew that there was a, a clear path to at least doing that. And then the data play, I think, was where I was like, well, if we could have awareness of all these pins of all these lakes and know about the lakes stitching together, you know, the the scenario for fishing with the product offering could be very, very powerful. And you wanted to sell, I mean, this wasn't going to be just like an online tackle shop. I mean, this is all the all the gear, everything you would right. need to buy for, for fishing. That's right. And and the, the big guys out there, the Cabela's and, and the sporting goods stores, like they weren't doing, I mean, were they doing well in fishing or... Yeah, they're doing exceptionally well, and they kind of had a stronghold on it. But mm-hmm. but that's actually where the idea came from: is that because they owned so much of the of the tackle and gear sales, and it was predominantly being done in store, the, the brands and the manufacturers were hamstrung by their relationship with Bass Pro and Cabela's mm. as, as some of the major ones. And actually, during that process, they were in the, they were combining. So all of a sudden, you had two major players becoming one. So it's a pretty scary situation when your, your sales channels are so limited and so controlled by a, a couple key players. So no, no, nobody had really taken this on. Our concept was essentially that, you know, every lake fishes very differently. And there's a lot of variables that go into fish behavior and the patterns and the makeup of the lake, the characteristics of the lake. So we said, could we sit down and could we organize that information at a baseline 
and and try to come up with a, a strategy to go out and compete with that brick and mortar experience by mm-hmm. creating a better in-store experience. So like the, the original question that you ask when you walk in store is, where are you going? What do you want to catch? Mm. And if you can get those answers, you hope that that in-store rep knows a little bit about your water body and can walk you down that aisle. And, and Chris actually does a really good job of talking about this massive selection, this overwhelming selection of colors and sizes and lengths and technique types, and then ha- having only the lights come on and the baits that match you. So for this very personalized, very contextualized shopping experience for the consumer, and they, they just hadn't taken that on. And, and I don't know if that's because it's a lot of information yeah. and uh, it's really complex, but they just hadn't prioritized it. And, and maybe it was because they had the in-store staff that, that could try and answer that question as best as, as sure. they could. Just kind of an old school experience. They owned it, yeah. Was there any part of you that wondered if the consumer was ready for that or if they sort of liked the old-fashioned go-to-the-tackle <laughs> shop and get-your-gear sort of thing? I think we're still figuring that out. Yeah, and and then that's a really interesting piece of this whole thing is that um, we we break up the fishing industry into species. We also break up the personas of the consumer, and so some parts of the uh, and, and kind of persona segments of the of the industry are we're really ready for it. Mm-hmm. And then we have now found there's a lot of people who have who have claimed that that in store experience is declining. The mom and pop vape shop is largely going away. That was the that was the shop by lake concept. It was the mom and pop shop that serviced that lake, and, and just people don't. That's not their normal shopping habits for most other other goods. So the fishing industry was just behind. So our uh, our experience to date, as a result of our growth, has been that for the most part everybody's ready, and mm-hmm. uh, and and as we continue to do a better job of it, um, the expectations of the consumer are still very high, but they're ready they, and they they want to see this. So you had this great idea. Now you've got the team. You've got all the angles on the expertise that you need. Where did the three of you begin as far as building this? Did you start with the mapping? Did you, what did you do first? You know, we started meeting, I think it was 2017. We started meeting, I think like once a month, we'd find a room at, at uh, the building that Matt and Chris were working in and we'd talk. You, you didn't know, go for, fishing? For, well, no. <laughs> it's sort of on the side of our When you get in the fishing industry, jobs, you yeah. actually fish less. Okay, yeah. good to know. <laughs> That's true. So it went from meeting once a month, I mean, having really good conversations to once a week. And then I think it was, you know, heading into the beginning of 2018. And, you know, this was getting a lot of momentum. It was really looking viable. And getting to the point of the spring of 2018 where, you know, Matt was saying, well, if we raise some money, would we all quit our jobs and start this? And I think in the spring of that year, I was like, yeah, well, if you raise X amount, yeah, I'll quit. And so I think within like two weeks, he'd raise that. And so I went in on Monday and quit. Matt quit. Chris quit. And then we started in, I think it was June of 2018 and wow. had space in uh, Northeast on Quincy. And, uh, wow. Okay. Let, wait, let's dig into that a little mm-hmm. bit because, because the people want to know and I want to know, first of all, can you, can you share how much that initial round was? What did you raise? I don't know if that's public or not, but we, we, raised a, we raised a cool million right out of the gates and said, you know, we have this idea, we have kind of a working prototype concept. And so we were able to, to raise a little money. I think having some uh, previous history in fundraising and, and uh, a prior exit, I think, helped yeah. a little bit get that along the way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, we were kind of off to running. And, I mean, is that what made it possible to do that before you'd really actually built anything? I mean, could, could somebody who was doing this as a first-time venture raise the money first, do you think? Or would you have had to do it a little differently? I would say, you know, Matt had had an exit. I just had an exit. And I think there's something very Minnesotan and Midwestern about the idea that the angel investing community really got it. It was scratching an edge they had personally. So that made it easier. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, having a good founding team and Chris, Matt, and I, I think was 
you know, they got to meet us. It was a face-to-face thing. It was very, you know, pounding the pavement locally. So I think the sell was very different than maybe a traditional pre-product raise, I think. Sure. It was very, you know, it was a Minnesotan idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think our, our it sounds like a cute company, a cute fishing company, but we, we, needed to, we needed to really invest. We could have probably done a little bit more without fundraising, but we really had to invest a lot in technology mm-hmm. and engineers, which kind of directly answers your question. We, we did start with the spatial component. Like, how do, we, how do we lay the foundation for organizing data based on location? Mm-hmm. And um, we invested a lot of that up front. And, and our algorithm, we, we had always had this vision that at some point we'd be able to acquire enough information that we'd be able to turn on this machine learning algorithm that would continue to improve. And that's kind of where we're at now. We're seeing this rapid acceleration, but it all started because we invested a lot in the engineering of being able to organize the data the right way. And so we talk about it as our, our data schema, like how, how that, it's actually the visual I get when you ask that question was, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the company Workshop, but Workshop has a really cool space in Northeast Minneapolis on Quincy Street and, and Broadway. And uh, a good friend of ours gave us the space. So we went in there on the 4th of July mm-hmm. and we, Dan had all these note cards and we like wrote out all of the techniques and all of the product types and, and uh, all of the characteristics of a water body. And we started laying it out and started like visually hmm. drawing connections between all these things. And that was going to be the foundation of our data schema, which again, we, we invested hundreds of thousands, if not millions into that over time to, to, to make sure that we nailed that first. Um, and then it would have been very difficult to kind of get to the point where we are, where now we're incorporating more AI, more machine learning to try and deliver this really powerful recommendation to consumers that we think is actually even better than the in-store experience. All started with laying those note cards out, and trying to think through how we would organize through the status schema. Wow. So I guess the, the learning there is just that take the time to, to do that planning up front. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think it would have been different if, if we wouldn't have had the prior exits or been able to raise that money up front. I, I don't think it would have been better or worse. I, I just think it would have been different. How much time was spent in that planning, you know, getting organized phase before you actually launched this thing? Well, we started in June, and I think one of the things that June we, of June of 2018. Okay, and then I think we went live November. Yep, seems pretty fast. Actually. Yeah, and I think the other side of this too is like we talked a lot about the technology and investing and getting all the data right, but then I think the um, it, what was a question mark still was like, oh, how are we going to get people this product, and was it going to be do we warehouse it, do we drop ship it, do we three PL it, and I think that's where Chris came in, and I think we really had to think critically about like, okay, can we afford, can we do all the lift that we need to do to get people the product in a way that is more than just, you know, because having experience in e-commerce, like when someone orders, if you don't get a good experience after order, you're kind of going to have a leaky bucket with that. And I think Chris quickly assembled a kind of a warehouse plan for how we could fulfill all this stuff. And I think the ambition behind our logistics got very aggressive quickly in a good way, in the sense that we were able to control our own destiny operationally. And I think that became then two sides of our business. We had the tech part, and then we have the, I think what probably people know us best for is the retail experience. Mm-hmm. But well, because com- ultimately that that's the business. Mm-hmm. That's where you're making yeah. the money is you're selling products. You're just layering on a really high-tech intensive experience. Right. Trying to create you- those at the same time was yeah. really hard. Yeah. Right. And I yeah. think a lot of people, investors that Matt pitched were saying, well, why are you going to take our capital and put it into atoms instead of bits? And it's like, well, because this experience is so broken. And I think, you know, Chris planning out the warehouse to do that and then us being able to support that technically we created a, this really powerful workflow that has served us well from when we launched even to today. So hmm. it's really been a much more ambitious build out of a business. And I think that being in it now for over four years, I think now being able to reap the benefits of having super strong logistics and operations and then the technology is finding its 
fit better now. So, But that was a part of the build-out, too, is like we had to find a space to sell this stuff. Did you realize how complicated this was going to be when you started? No, we, no, we wouldn't have done it. No. <laughs> Come no. on, really? <laughs> Would anybody? I, I think I, I like truly right. believe that's foundational to being an entrepreneur is yeah. like you've got something broken in your brain. It doesn't allow you to perceive all the risk, and uh, and and you just you just run head head first into it, and mm-hmm. it, it's been really hard. <laughs> what made it hard, and how did they overcome it? We'll find out right after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best and Flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best in Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. Even with their prior tech experience, Omnia Fishing was more difficult to get off the ground than the founders expected. Here's why been much harder to get off the ground. And I, I think that, you know, where we saw a success in my first business was selling to these government agencies. Mm-hmm. So I was going in to try and pitch this really cool tool. We tried to not tell people how technical it was and just talk about the output. I was selling to these agencies that were using a $70,000 depth finder and uh, two weeks worth of a PhD data processing. Mm-hmm. It was the easiest thing in the world. I was selling them a $600 piece of electronics and a, a $4,000 per seat license. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was so easy to sell something. Like, now, when you go into consumer, I've got to figure out how to make 100 bucks off of everybody. <laughs> right. And everybody wants to have their opinion and tell you how stupid you are. And, and consumer is just so much harder. And I, I think that was, the, that was the piece to layer on top of this. Now, Consumer's so I, harder than the government. That's the <laughs> <laughs> for different reasons. I, I no, think I I pre- there's plenty of people that would refute that. But yeah. it was just so different. And, uh, and, and trying to build a cool brand that's very technical and, and, uh, and, and then also be able to deal with all of the, you know, what, Amazon's the standard for what you expect for mm-hmm. when you make an order online, how quickly you receive it. How are three idiots in Minnesota going to figure out how to warehouse 20,000 SKUs and get it out the door same day and, and, uh, and try to do that all on a shoestring is really hard. Yeah. Um, so it sounds almost like the, the consumer piece of this, the retail piece, was almost trickier than you knew how to do the tech. I mean, that's hard, but you guys have the expertise to do that. Am I, is that. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what makes yeah. consumer businesses yeah. hard all the time. Yeah. yeah. So, so, Chris, while these guys were working on the tech and mapping lakes and, and things of that nature, what were you doing? Well, I mean, pretty early on, we had to build out our product assortment, or at least the initial product assortment, to help match the tech. I mean, the, the one thing about the space is it's, it's highly, highly fragmented. You know, you have various species across the country, you have different regional trends, you have different key opinion leaders that influence buying habits or purchase habits, or you have different types of water bodies, you have different temperatures, you have all kinds of different uh, variations throughout, throughout the space, right? On top of that, you have very, what I would say, pretty low barriers to entry into the space. You know, we're, we're highly reliant on foreign manufacturer. Uh, low cost of goods, thus, you know, most of the products do come from Asia, or at least a large percentage of them currently. So a bunch of different brands, a bunch of different products, just layering into a bunch of the additional complexities there. Mm -hmm. Um, So so I imagine, I mean, certainly to start, you you couldn't try to be a big box store or or did you try? I mean, did you decide to go more high end or did you kind of pick a lane? We we initially picked 
picked a lane. I mean, when I when we break down the space, you know, fishing can be perceived as a lot of different things, but but quickly I'd segment it out to four different different markets, and that'd be inshore, offshore, conventional freshwater, and fly. If you break out the actual market percentages of of makeup, seventy five percent of it or, or so is coming from you know just that uh, uh, conventional freshwater market. If you actually break it down further by species, it's it's dominated by freshwater bass, and thus it was it was more of a directional target. Let's focus into bass initially, build our merchandise assortment to be very focused into the, into that species on a on a national scope. There's a lot of reasons for it, but you know, if you, if we can broaden our geographic, we can we can reduce some of the seasonal curve, and thus don't have to have to full fully adjust our merchandise mix based upon ice or open water. Right, right. Those are factors too. So you you started, if I remember correctly, from from the earliest articles that that we wrote. Um, you started with Midwestern bodies of water, right? Yeah, you kind of worked your way out. Exactly. So, so like Chris is saying, you know, there's a, a lot of different brand preferences. Bass gave us a national opportunity. It's like one of the only species that they catch throughout the entire country. But the, all of the brands are different. All of the lakes are different. All of the technique and seasonality is different. And so, so yeah, we set out for bass. We, we really took a focus, said, let's win at home first. Mm-hmm. So let's gather all of the information for the lakes. I had all of these relationships with DNR agencies, so I could go out and say, you know, I need to know your average and max depths. We, we built that into the schema. And, you know, what's your bait fish? Uh, what kind of uh, structures present stuff? And a lot of that stuff is, is out there and available. It's just all fragmented and, and, uh, and hard to organize. So we gathered that information first. And once you've nailed uh, a state that has 12,000 lakes, doing it in Georgia and South Carolina is actually pretty easy because, you know, they have a 50 or 100 uh, of these large reservoirs. So we, we started there, started the hard stuff first, started with bass. And, and we operated under this idea that we could build a billion-dollar business without ever leaving bass fishing if, if we nailed the whole United States for bass fishing. It's big enough. Wow. And so we really attacked that one first. And, and, uh, and so like Chris said, he, he was focused on building out our assortment. We originally said, are, are we building a marketplace here where we make a connection to another retailer or are we operating under a dropship model with the manufacturers? And what we have found is that the consumer requirements were that their cart was so diversified across, you know, three to five brands and eight to 10 products that they were going to make a purchase for $150 and they were going to get five boxes showing up at different times. And it was going to be a terrible experience. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so from the beginning, we, we tried to figure out how to really attack the Midwest brands first, the Midwest preferences, the Midwest key opinion leaders, the lake data, mm-hmm. build the schema around that, and it would be easy to scale from there. So now at this point, we're a very national company. We have very distributed sales in uh, all but a couple uh, uh, states like Montana and Wyoming. And uh, we have been able to successfully increase the number of SKUs, the, our key opinion leaders, uh, our marketing messaging. And so what ends up happening is if you're in Florida, Omnia is very different to you than if you're in Minnesota based on what brands we present and the user-generated content oh, that we digest and present, the timeline of it. And, uh, and, and so that kind of relating back to what I said about the consumer as, as a big critic, we knew that we had to, in order to be legitimate, we needed to make sure we met expectations where if you're making a recommendation, it better be tied to what they normally buy or good recommendations in line with their expectations. But you did decide to control all the pro. I mean, you have product. You are end to end. I come to you. Mm-hmm. I find my, my lake. 
I decide what I'm going to buy. You're, I'm buying it from Omnia and you're shipping it to me. It depends. We've got about 25,000 SKUs in the warehouse today. Okay. And, uh, you, know, you know, we hold millions of dollars worth of inventory. If you buy from us, we are, our, our top thing is not to ensure that we ship it to you from us. Our top priority is to make sure that we meet your expectations. Hmm. For the most part, most of the products do come out of our warehouse, but we do have processes in place that we, we have trusted dropship partners. Um, we do have certain categories that we don't warehouse. Um, that have allowed us to expand our portfolio a lot. Uh, but but uh, for the most part, all of those, when I mention seven different sizes and 45 different colors, for the most part, you're getting that from us. Okay. So is that similar to like on Amazon when it's like a third-party seller? Is that the same kind of relationship? Kind of. I, you know what? It's hard to say exactly, but generally we have close to 100 different suppliers. As Matt mentioned, a little over 25,000 SKUs. Where we really focus into our Omnia-owned inventory is is hand to fish, and and that's how we kind of describe it. It's it's the rods, it's the reels, uh, it's the lures, it's the line, it's the bait, it's everything you need from hand to fish. Where we do and, and supplement our inventory is is in areas like marine or apparel, things that you know have wider wider assortments potentially higher dollars, potentially lower margin. Higher risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be standalone packages anyway. So again, to, to Matt's point, it, it's, you know, we use our operational facility to, to maximize that experience. We view a, a primary factor in that is, is making sure that your, your uh, order is going to be consolidated and arrive to you in a, in a very quick, quick manner. And uh, however we do that, you know, if that comes from us or if it comes from a, a partner, but the vast majority of it, it today is is aggregation of our operational facility. Dan, what was the biggest challenge in kind of connecting these these two big goals, the 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 mapping technology and then connecting it to the right products? As a user experience, what was what was the big challenge for you? Yeah, I think leaning on mass experience knowing that geography was super important and I think location-based retail isn't necessarily a new concept, but I think in the context of fishing it is in the sense that even within a state, things vary radically. So I think it was a little bit of like, you know, building up pillars that were tall enough to support the foundation of a house. And I think the first pillar we built was the geographic awareness of where things were and enriching each of the data sets with, you know, the water clarity, the species that inhabit it. And once we had that representation there, you could start going to market saying like, okay, where is the demand for information about these lakes? Where is the demand for the products for those lakes? And then while we did that, we also set up what was more of like a traditional e-commerce system. And I think that was probably maybe a bit more ambitious than I had anticipated. So I think that having done a lot of e-commerce in the past, it was um, a buildup, but I had to keep in mind, or we had to keep in mind that there was going to be exponentially more SKUs eventually. Hmm. So not building something that was so monolithic that it couldn't evolve and grow and be pieced together. And I think that's been one of the core strengths of our business is we've been able to grow our operations without getting in the way of the product development. So I think the key was not divide the resources across technical needs. So sure. You launched with how, how many lakes, how many bodies of water? Well, technically, I think we had over 100,000, but meaningful, what would you say? 30,000. Yeah. So like wow. well-fished when you lakes. Launched. Yeah. And now how many? Well, it's still the same amount. I think we just, what's been great is that we can capture um, interest in those lakes a lot more. And I think there's, you know, 10 to 30,000 meaningfully fished lakes that we have awareness of. I think okay. the word that's changed a lot is, you know, we, I think we originally launched our, with about 2,000 SKUs. Mm-hmm. That's grown rapidly over the years. You know, again, back to the point where we're at 25, 26,000 now today. Yeah. 
And continuing to expand. I mean, it's it's not, we haven't reached a point of saturation yet on, on kind of the SKUs. Again, we've been very directionally focused on bass, but we most recently just expanded our assortment into serving an additional species of, of crappie, which requires a, a, an additional assortment and an additional set of, of merchandise. So hmm. I think that's that's really where things are expanding. It's it's not necessarily on the lake side; it's it's on the product side. Got yeah. it. And I think one of the challenges earlier was too is um, you know as we built these early mappings and algorithms, you know, back in 2018, 2019. Would that hold as the company grew? Is there going to be too much technical debt to allow us to grow as fast as we need to grow with limited resources and limited time? I think that that was another thing that we, staying agile and being able to combine the, the awareness geography-wise and then also have the products there, let us you know continue to kick the tires. And like Chris said, expanding to a new species, well, that's very specific. But knowing that that held, I think that was a really good validation a couple of years ago that, okay, this platform, you know, the investments we were making to build this out, we're going to hold. Mm-hmm. And we could have the confidence to really start pushing to get more exposure. So do you remember the day that you like flipped the switch and <laughs> this and Omnio fishing went live? Where where were you? I don't were think it was together? that exciting. No. No. <laughs> no, I think it was like Halloween of yeah. 2018, I think. Yeah. But yeah. but I can I mean, generally founders have stories of like, you know, watching the number. I mean, did did the people show up? Yeah, they they did, but it, it was uh, it, it was kind of related to your last question. Like, how did we expand from here? We, we stumbled into something that was kind of cool. Is we actually tried to communicate to the customer that this thing is is going to grow brick by brick over time. It's going to get better and smarter over time. So, like, instead of us deciding which lakes to activate and start to build upon, mm-hmm. we put a little tool in there that said, uh, "Does it not look like this lake has any data? Please request activation." And uh, damn, what did we get? Like two thousand? Yeah, it was very quick. So, yeah. so actually, our initial customers were coming in and uh, and trying to figure this thing out. Uh, not necessarily bottom of funnel ready to convert. Um, these people were creating accounts. They were requesting activation. Uh, Dan would reach out and they would say, I'd love to give you the information on this lake, uh, tell you what species are in it and, hmm. and break it down for you and tell you some. So we almost crowdsourced uh, a lot of that new lake stuff. So how did they find it? It wasn't that you, exciting. Though, yeah. It's, in the first place. You know, we had a pretty good map based experience to like have awareness of where meaningful lakes were. And so there was a little bit of SEO at play there. But I think also, um, you know, we had some early partnerships with some key opinion leaders professional anglers, some other, you know, regional people that had influence. And I think that we were coming at this in a different way. So the innovation of the approach, I think, was apparent. I think we hadn't found the product market fit, but I think at least showing that we were attempting to have, you know, mm-hmm. awareness of different lakes at different and, times. And so when you talk about SEO, Dan, you mean like if I'm searching for a specific lake, Omnia is going to pop up. Yeah, so that kind of that combination of is the user's intent to buy or is it to research or is mm. it to learn? And so I think we were trying to circle all of those things. And I think the easier play was to transactionally find intent. But I think we were trying to find that person that was looking to plan or learn and then ultimately make a decision on what to buy, which is a lot bigger lift and a lot harder thing to communicate. And it takes a lot of different features for that to be apparent. And, and every angler knows an angler. I, I, would, I would actually give a lot of credit to one of the first groups we reached out to, which is a... Um, uh, the Minnesota Kayak Association. And um, this is a group of people who have chosen kayak because it's a lower cost entry to be able to fish open Hmm. water. And um, you've got a lot of very knowledgeable, excellent anglers that are trying to figure out how to expand the sport. And so we reached out to them and said, we'd like to figure out how to sponsor you guys. And and we think we have a tool that that could be very useful because we can organize this information. You'll have a tournament and then uh, whoever wins the tournament, you can talk about product. 
And you, this, this concept of a fishing report came around. Mm-hmm. We never say don't give away your spots, but just talk about baits and colors of baits and things that are more generic that start to tie that data schema together and allow it to evolve. And, and so I think that was, uh, Dan mentions the key opinion leaders and, and, uh, and, and the people, I think that was some of our first customers other than our parents. Uh, that, but that, that was some of the first ones to say, like, how could this be more impactful for you? How could this yeah. help you expand your knowledge base of fishing so that even at a point where you're not ready to buy something, you're using this as a planning tool? And then the evolution of that is when people go and say, you know, I want to fish for a million. And, and that same question that they ask, ask in store, they say, I want to fish for a million. What should I be doing? What techniques should I use? What baits would work for me? We're so well set up for that, that all of our data is organized, all of our fishing reports, all of our content scales very well for purposes of SEO that we, that we, we have these really high rankings. Even right out of the gate, we saw some really incredible lift mm-hmm. where, where we would meet some of that, that keyword intent to, to look for information on how to fish. So it sounds like your um, assumptions about what consumers wanted and how they were using the internet in that process were pretty much spot on. Were there any surprises about consumer behavior or about users on the site? Well, I think there was like a magic number of products that we had to have on the site to really get buy-in from customers to say, okay, these guys are legit. I think authenticity in fishing is really important. And I think you demonstrate that sometimes by having the right selection. I think Chris and his team have been very intentional about the brands and the things that they brought in. Because mm-hmm. you didn't want to be you know, too high-end or too low-end. You wanted to have just the right stuff. And I think that took time and resources and years to get that magic mix there. And so I think that's the super important part of the growth. I think if somebody believes that they can benefit from it, uh, they want to be a contributor. So starting off with those things like, tell us what lake you'd like to activate. Would you like to be part of building this community, this platform? We, we were pretty impressed by how quickly people wanted to be a part of that. Hmm. There's always a stigma around fishing about sharing information. But, but I think that stigma Why? applies... Well, I think people work really hard at, at breaking and understanding a lake. And uh, a lot of that's spots. You know, they, they, mm. they know more than, than the average person that just wants to jump into trying a new lake. And I actually think they should be fairly guarded on that information. And so we've, we've just had to be really careful about what we ask from our consumers. Um, but, hmm. the, but the feedback loop that's going to continue to improve our recommendation engine is information from the community. It's, it's instead of filing a review, you file a fishing report and say, this green pumpkin soft plastic was the one that got the hits all day long. And there's something there. There's a reason that that bait got a response from the fish, whether it's the clarity of the water or the sunlight penetration or mm-hmm. proximity to vegetation or what structure you're fishing. But uh, we actually would tell them, please don't share your locations. We think that that's the wrong thing to share. And that's not what we're building on. This is a commerce community. This is a, this is a, a way for us to share information, to get better at the sport, to learn and then, and then try to shift that behavior where you don't have to go in store anymore. You're going to get more from this. And we'll also give you this best-in-class retail experience on top of it. Allowed us to keep a customer that came in, stayed engaged, found more in just a place to buy things. Hmm, interesting. And are you, are, you work, are you harboring that kind of community side of this beyond e-commerce? Are there other things you can do? Are you, do you have chat rooms? Are there other ways to, to build that community? Well, I think one of the features Matt mentioned was the phishing report. And that was when we, that came to fruition early on. And, and that was the user generated feedback loop that we needed to add to the mix so that these, these lake pages had a user component of the feedback. Well, that takes the place of a review. And I think we also were very intentional about like making sure the signals coming into the system were super clean and structured so that it wasn't just a message board or chat room full of crap. It was meant to be people submitting qualified information. So we've been very careful about making sure that the community aspects are not um, there's lots of places you can go have those conversations. We wanted to keep the site very focused on expertise mm-hmm. so that we could use it for recommendations. Makes sense. 
But there are a lot of places we can go with that, with that as a central theme. So, so we're, we're trying to solve all kinds of things now. We're working with the lenders as an example to try and figure out how to take a TV audience. And w- when people see their, their biggest complaint is, I watch you fish with all this gear on your TV show. And then they have to go out and hunt and peck and find all these things. Mm-hmm. Well, we now work with the lenders. We have uh, the ability to then port that experience from TV directly into the Omnia platform. It's organized by location and species. There's other ways to discover it. And all of the baits are right there next to the video in this shoppable video format. So that is a central theme of organizing information and then building commerce around it, it has allowed us to take all of the things that we thought were fairly outdated with phishing and really push the, the, the boundaries and, and push this into the future of, of how people will consume in the future. We think we're at the center of that. It seems like the, the big guys, the, the big box companies would be just salivating to have this kind of data. Are they, have you been approached uh, with acquisition offers? Would you entertain them? <laughs> Uh, we're on their radar. <laughs> we know that we're on their radar and, uh-huh. and, uh, we have, we have grown and we have gobbled up market share fast enough that we are on a lot of people's radar, I think. Yeah. But uh, we're, we're still pretty focused. We think that there's a lot of opportunity to continue to grow. So yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've certainly been approached by people who want to either get in early or uh, take us out early <laughs> and, uh, and, and we're still continuing forward. We still have Access to lots of capital and and lots of opportunity to continue to grow, and we're going to keep growing. I was going to say you've had a couple more fundraising rounds yeah. since. Um, and what is that? What is that primarily for? Is that to grow the team? Is there more technology that you're building? What are you doing? Yeah, a combination of all those things. You know, we're a team of thirty now. We we don't have plans to grow a lot. We've really rounded out a lot of the fields that we thought were important to take this technology to the next level. You know, we've added really talented UX. We've added really talented data science and front end back end engineering. And, uh, and, and, you know, best in class marketers that really understand how to acquire this type of customer and build in this brick by brick format. We, we couldn't go out and get a marketer that uh, just knew how to get bottom of funnel transactions because that's not what our business is. We had to figure out how, how do you sell the dream of what this thing is and what it can do for you hmm. long term. So we've built out this very talented team that was, you know, that was one of our phases in, in some of our funding. But, but to date, uh, you know, some of the things that we're building now as a result of the amount, you know, we've generated uh, tens of thousands of phishing reports now across uh, all states. And the things that we can do with that are really powerful. So, so we think that the, the accelerated growth that we're seeing now is largely coming from being a better technology company. And so, like, for example, we're launching a feature called Dynamic Kidding as an example, where you can tell us just a little bit about you, like, I want to go to this lake and catch a bass in the summer. And it will very quickly say, here's, here's the bait that's recommended most often. There's a lot of machine learning. There's a lot of digesting the user-generated content and presenting it back to the consumer. And this tool will take all of the information and the associations that we have uh, between product categories and will very quickly build an entire cart. Chris mentioned hand to fish. We're very mm. focused. Can we get you everything between your hand and the fish's mouth? And then not only personalize it to your location, but personalize it to your preference. So we know you're, uh, you know, you just don't like to buy high-end stuff or, you, you know, you kind of want to buy in that middle range. We can build this very personalized cart and we can contextualize it to say it's been mentioned this many times and this is how you use these things together. That was the whole point of why people went in store. And we now have enough data that we think we can successfully do that with really high accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's potentially a standalone company. And I'm not saying that that is, but the, the things that we're building, the, the, the technology and the focus that we're making, they, they draw a relation between 
entire technology platforms. Um, right. And, and, and something that you could apply to other industries. Right. It, right. Exactly. And I think when you talked about like, okay, would we sell or would we sell out or take more capital from a strategic? I think when we think about like what's in front of us in terms of opportunity, we feel more confident than ever that we're most qualified in the world to, to apply this technology to this vertical. I think we spent five years figuring the space out. And now that we're at a point where we've got critical mass and momentum that there's so much left to be done and there's so much opportunity in applying technology and user experience that, you know, there's so much being bandied about with AI and generative AI and all sorts of things. And it's like, that's great in a vacuum, but in, unless you apply that to the business and to a business case, it doesn't really matter. And I think that's that's the stuff that gets us excited about. Okay. That was my next question. Let's talk <laughs> because it's on everybody's mind right now, AI and chat pops. I mean, how does it relate to Omnia? Where, where can it help you? Well, Dan's 50% AI. So. Yeah. That's why I stay so young. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, seriously though, what do you what do you see as the application? Are you are you all in, Dan, on well, on AI? So we think about it as a team for sure. I think you know when we started the business in 2018, we called what we were building an algorithm. We were building mappings between geography, attributes about products, techniques of fishing, times of year. So we were already priming the pump to do this sort of engineering before we had a machine learning engineer, before AI became so in vogue. And so the great thing about being on this business now five years in is that when the the really magical things that are happening with AI and large language models are coming to fruition, the application is very apparent to us. So I think that's where things get very, very powerful. Hmm. But I think applying it as you know a broad stroke to your business wouldn't work, but I think applying it to a very well-structured data set like we have, yeah, it's almost a textbook application of it. Hmm. Very cool. So the, in the next year, or I don't know how far out you all, I mean, do you have five, 10-year plans? What, what's, is the focus right now adding product, adding customers? What, what would you say are the biggest priorities? Certainly all those things. Um, I, I think continuing to double down on the technology, though, like we, we truly believe that a better experience, the better recommendation engine, a better, more informed, trained output are some of the key things to growth. And we, we are going to continue to invest in those things because we think that there's this massive network effect. The more people that run into what we've created and the value that it can add to them, the more they want to also participate in that. And so mm-hmm. we're starting to see that flywheel really turn quickly. And, and we think we're going to solve it with technology, not bigger Facebook advertising budgets. This, this really does come from, again, all of the things that, that you've asked about, the how do you leverage AI in order to acquire a customer base? And mm-hmm. how do you take the, and train it against our data set to answer every single question that every angler has about uh, fishing? And we have a lot of that information. And, and, uh, and so we will continue to improve our technology to continue to get that flywheel turning faster and faster. And that's, that's really the focus for us over the next 12 months. I'm curious, what do you know about young people who live on their phones and love technology? Are they interested in, are, are they, are they interested in fishing? So. What are the industry yeah. trends? I think generally it's, it, it, put it this way, you know, during COVID, we saw a lot of participation increase, and partly due to the fact that there was less alternatives, there weren't youth organized sports or things like that. So people gravitated towards fishing. You know, we saw about a 20, 25% increase in license sales. The general TAM, I, I think, is somewhere around 38 to 40 million anglers. It jumped to a little over 50 during that period of time. We have seen some of that drift back as youth sports have, have continued on and, and uh, re-engaged. But one really positive thing that's kind of happened over the last six years is, is high school. High school fishing is becoming a real thing. Hmm. 
college fishing is is been established and you know there's there's a hierarchy there's scholarships that can go along with it generally i think the the youth population is quite healthy at least healthier than it has been in the last decade for hmm. for sure interesting but the one thing i would say about that too is like well people are chasing trends on things like tiktok and all, all sorts of things i think the the nice thing about working in a space like fishing is authenticity and quality of content will always win mm. and so repackaging it up in a, a tiktok dance isn't going to make someone watch it more <laughs> no no fishing dances huh? <laughs> well those exist but not <laughs> seems like you'd have a lot of downtime <laughs> while you're out there it, it, i'm just saying <laughs> Maybe that's your future. Of, uh, <laughs> yes. The, the um, YouTube personalities in fishing has really exploded, and, and they have attracted a very young crowd huh. that has the, the evolution of that content creation, which, which Omni has this outlet for content creators. Uh-huh. But the, the YouTube expansion of content creation has led to really rapid increases in, uh, in their transition into manufacturing products. And so there are a couple brands out there that have created what we believe are pretty bad products that are now some of the top selling brands in the industry or wow. were for a period of time. Yeah. So those people were ready to be influenced. They wanted to be influenced. And yeah. um, that was a young crowd that were consuming uh, content. We think the evolution of their experience is now they, they move on to something like Omnia where they learn from uh, an expert and they learn more about, well, that, uh, that little soft plastic doesn't stand up the way it was supposed to. Uh, this is actually a better bait, and this hmm. is manufactured with science, and uh, this will actually get a better response from the fish as their journey through the fishing industry kind of evolves. Yeah, interesting. Well, it seems like you definitely have the, the, the business figured out. You've got, got your eyes on the prize. I'm curious about your relationship. I just want to end with that. What is the key to being good co-founders? How does it, you, you all arrive together in a car, so you're, you speak to each other, <laughs> even when not on a mic. What's the key to making it work? You each bring something different to the table. Should we each say one? Yes, Dan, why don't you start? Let's <laughs> right. go around. Well, we'll I think around. we weren't, I wouldn't say we were friends, you know, good friends before we started. I think we've maintained a good friendship as the business has grown. But I think the lanes that we're all in charge of, me and Tech, Chris and Ops and Matt and BizDev and leading the business, I think have allowed for really clear paths of responsibility. And I think cross-functionally, we've had a good rapport there. So I think having enough responsibility, but then also enough sense of when crossover is important. I think we've, we've grown into a good cadence with that. Hmm. Chris? Yeah, I, I would reiterate that. I mean, we each have our own expertise. I think we lean on each other a bunch. Dan and I have sister dogs. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> What kind of dogs? Golden Retrievers. Of course. Yeah. 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 Very nice. Um, and, and Matt, what, you don't have a dog, Matt? I, I don't. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. Um, but as the business has grown and it's not just the three of you anywhere, how does that change the culture and the dynamic and, and the relationship between you three and then the rest of the team? Yeah, I, I don't think a lot has changed between us as we've grown. You know, we, we've tried to bring, I think we're all tried to stay as humble as possible. Um, we joke about, you know, that our platform is so powerful and, but we still, we want, we want to learn a lot and we, we still think we have a lot to learn on how to grow this business. So we've stayed humble throughout that period, I think. Um, so, so we've tried to hire and bring in people that are much smarter than us in specific disciplines. And, and that's been really important. I think between the three of us, we've, we've talked, we've used the words pragmatism and uh, reliance. Like, you know, we all have very different skill sets and so we all rely on each other. We, we've built a level of trust on our, our competency and our capabilities within those different disciplines. And I, I don't, I think we're, we fight. We, we don't, we're not afraid to, to, to let the other one know and we think they're wrong. 
Hmm. And and I think that's healthy. We but we approach it from a very objective and and pragmatic pragmatic way. And uh, so not a lot of blow ups. A lot of times it's like uh, this. Uh, I don't think that this is the right way to think about this. And we, and we work it out as adults. So I think when you have that foundation and trust and reliance uh, in each other's capability, I think as long as you have a respectful and and pragmatic approach to how you have disagreements, I think. I think we could get along for another couple of years. <laughs> another couple of years, huh? Yeah, then we sell the business. <laughs> Aha. Okay, we've just made news right there. Well, it's a great story, you guys. Congratulations on all the success. It's really exciting and thinking about how else this could apply to retail and e-commerce. It's very cool. Will you at least make time to go fishing together this summer? A couple times? Yeah, I don't know Maybe. if we have. Uh, Chris and I, have, we've we, fished we, together. We, we have, yeah. Okay. Dan, you got to get in on that. Yes, we'll see. Okay. All right. Thank you all for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, if you're into fishing and you haven't already, you definitely need to check out omniafishing.com. Now, full disclosure, I'm not so much of an angler myself, and neither is our next guest, Gino Giovanelli. However, there are so many learnings from this conversation that are really exciting when it comes to the future of retail, e-commerce, AI, and just how to set up a successful startup. So let's get into it. Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Gino Giovanelli is a marketing professor. Sorry that I outed you as a non-angler uh, type, Gino. I hope that's okay. That's totally fine. <laughs> guilty, guilty as hell. I know you had a lot of thoughts um, on this interview. Let's let's start with the how this company set up. It just feels like a textbook case of how to do a startup right. that is going to raise venture capital. Right. I, I think the, the the smartest thing these guys did is they they had a lane, they stuck to their lane. You have you have three different personalities and skill sets. Uh, you know, Matt the entrepreneur, Dan is the tech guy, Chris is the optics guy, and they they kind of had their area of expertise and they stuck to their lane and just drove this thing forward. Uh, but I also feel like beyond that is there was a, a degree of pragmatic culture that I felt in, in hearing what they had to say during the podcast, where uh, it sounds like they're not afraid to disagree and that they don't always have to uh, sing kumbaya. And I, th- I think for startups, that's a little tricky because a lot of times they don't, it, maybe it's a side hustle at first and it's a bunch of buddies getting together and rolling out this great idea. And they, and at some point they're like, you know, this is supposed to be fun. It's like, but I, I feel like these guys did it in a way that they, they really set out with big goals in mind and kind of said, it's going to be hard and we're going to push through the hard. It's the only way to make it work right. well is to not necessarily compromise all the time, but to, to fight for what you think is right. So I, I give them a lot of credit. Honestly, it's the, it's the hard route, but it, it pays dividends. Yeah. Um, one of the things that is so fascinating to me is just thinking about this intersection of information, you know, deep intelligence in an industry, crowdsourcing with your audience, and then Mm -hmm. retail. And it seems like this could be applied to other things. And they were basically suggesting that as somebody who is thinking about all of this and teaching AI and studying Mm it, what do you see as the implications? I I love it. I, I just think, you know, with the whole chat GPT thing, it's, it's a new day. I mean, we've been talking about AI, Allison, for years, and it's, it's always been this theoretical thing that PhDs talk about in grad school or whatever. Um, but not a lot of us saw tangible, um, outputs of it, if you will, until chat GPT just literally landed in our lap and people just started putting queries in and, and, uh, 
and prompts in and all of a sudden saw for themselves that, that like this, this is amazing and it, it works really well and it works really fast. So I think because we now have these tools in our hands and we're seeing them for ourselves, we're now more trusting of the kind of information. You know, you, you compare it, Allison, to they, they constantly made this comparison between the Ma and Pa bait shops with these seasoned fishermen or fisher person that, that know the lakes really, really well. And, and that's awesome. And then you've got the other side of the spectrum where it's, it's the absence of people. It's data providing similar kind of information and even, even richer in the sense of how, how deep the lake is, the contour of the bottom, the, the amount of vegetation, the temperature, the fish you're going for. And not only for the lake right down the street from the Ma and Pa bait shop, but any any lake you want in, in, in Minnesota or in the Midwest or whatever. So they can go deeper and broader with these tools that maybe 10 years ago, people would be real skeptical and say, yeah, but I got my guy, Eddie, at the, at the shop and Eddie knows this lake. But what about mm-hmm. this other lake? And what what about different you know, different criteria. So right. I, I, at, at the end of the day, I think there's just more trust uh, in these tools like AI. Hmm. So, so for others who might be listening and thinking, gosh, I can, I have another application or this makes me think about, you know, another type of business I could do with this same sort of, you know, mix of AI and retail. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I mean, what, what's the takeaway? And do you think we're going to just see an explosion of businesses similar to what Omni is trying to do? Or is it too hard still? I, I think it is hard. I think it's about finding the right mix or the right match, if you will. Um, even even fishing, I think, is a little bit risky in the sense that some people think of it as a hobby. It's a sport. Let's not. We're not doing the stock market here. We're not looking for money ball solutions where we're using data to predict outcomes. I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to catch a fish. We're not trying to make a ton of money. Well, some some are. <laughs> there are professionals. This is true. I'm this is true. But for the average recreational fisher person, I. You know, maybe they just they just want it to be a little bit of that mystique black box where I got a guy who knows a lake who'll show me a good spot with the right bait with the right you know and mm-hmm. don't try to overanalyze it. At the end of the day, it's a it's it's a sport. Um, but if it can work here, it can work a heck of a lot of other places because there's so many more industries where that isn't the issue where people do just want the best recommendation engine provided in the most convenient online shopping way, if you will. So, right. Yeah, the the technology is here, and uh, they were well positioned to to seize on this moment where it all comes together. Totally, what a, what a great um, kind of the the trifecta, if you will. Absolutely. All right. Well, Gino, maybe you and I need to uh, hit one of the lakes this summer. Give it a shot. Or wait, maybe with Omnia tools, we can we can enjoy it and, and have be, <laughs> be successful at it. I should say. Maybe that's the key. It would be a lot yeah. more fun if we were successful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gino Giovanelli, thank you so much, and thank you to our presenting partner, the University of Saint Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com/slash/by-all-means. Thanks so much for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. 
Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Thank you.